This episode is sponsored by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online training from IT Pro TV with a special offer for you. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout for 30% off all plans. You know how AAA works when managing network gear, right? AAA, authentication, authorization, and accounting. Who are you? What are you allowed uh, to do? What are you trying to do? Log everything you're doing. That, that's the big idea there. And, and the granularity you get with that AAA, that, that's outstanding. You can build policies that let NetOps folks do precisely what they need and no more. And if someone with admin access blows up the network, you, you have a record of what happened. And if a manager needs read-only access to do their job, you can give that to them. And you could think of AAA schemes as an early form of zero trust. Yeah, it, it's missing a lot of what zero trust is all about. I, I get that. Don't get me wrong. But I think the AAA model many network engineers are familiar with and role-based access control generally, that's an interesting way to introduce today's discussion. Here's what I'm getting at. In a world of breach presumption, zero-day exploits, and endlessly patching CVEs, the way we do cybersecurity these days has failed us in significant ways. What if we could extend the, the AAA or RBAC model to all applications? Better yet, what if we take the RBAC model and make authentication more robust than simply username and password, uh, assess endpoint security constantly, and evaluate each request individually up at layer seven for all applications? Huh, that would be interesting. What does a security architecture like this look like? Who's responsible to make it all work? Is that a NetOps function or is it SecOps, DevOps, or, or is it everybody? And perhaps most concerning of all, where are the enforcement points in this zero trust model? At, is that at the client? Is that embedded in the app? Is this a middle box of some sort, some sort of like an exotic layer seven firewall or a proxy or something? To help us answer these questions is Galil Zeno. Galil is the founder and CEO at NetFoundry, and Galil has strong opinions about what zero trust embedded in applications should look like, and, and he's entitled to those opinions as far as I'm concerned, because he's one of the people responsible for OpenZD. It's a free open source software product delivering zero trust networking. Now, this is not a sponsored discussion today. This conversation is a chance to dig into the big ideas of a zero trust security model and consider how your network and the apps you run on them would fit. Don't forget to consider how a model like this would change your day-to-day -day ops. And, and while I'm intrigued by the model we're going to discuss today, there are practical impacts to operations, as my friend Russ White is fond of saying. If you haven't found the trade-offs, you haven't looked hard enough. Galil Zeno, welcome to Heavy Networking. And, and Galil, I, I want to start with a philosophical question first. Is zero-trust networking inevitable? That, that is, do you think most networks taking up security seriously end up implementing a zero trust model. Hi, Ethan. First of all, pleasure to be here. Big fan of heavy networking. I've learned a lot from you and your guest. I hope I can contribute a bit. Uh, maybe, Ethan, before I use like the zero trust marketing language, can, can I back it up a little bit to talk more of a in general secure networking context and, and, and answer your question that way? Yeah, man, do it that. Do it. Okay. All right, good. So if I, if I look at secure networking, Ethan, absolutely. We're seeing much more attention. The why behind that is, is two factors, or at least two main factors, right? Number one, secure networking is much harder than it was yesterday. Uh, our applications are much more distributed, both the backends, microservices, you know, the breakdown of these monolithic applications, as well as our users and devices. No, you mean secure networking as in because of where devices are getting them, securing those devices is more difficult. Is that, that the point you're making? 
Yeah, like okay. even right, it wasn't only so many years ago that like we had a few connections. They were relatively static. Most of our apps were in one place. There were these big monolithic apps. So that's changed, right? So it's it's more difficult. Um, which means, Ethan, if I'm an engineer, if I'm an operator, if I'm a development team, I have a need to simplify, right? Because my world's getting more complex. Uh, I need to simplify. And then number two, the other big change, again, as opposed to even 10 years ago, when most of our businesses used applications, now our businesses are applications. Like we are distributed software. Um, in other words, the network, it better be resilient, it better be reliable, it better be secure. Otherwise, I'm impacting my customer experience. So all of a sudden, secure networking is not just like a cost center. It's part of how I deliver my product to my customers. So for those two reasons, yeah, Ethan, a whole lot more attention on secure networking these days. Okay. So drill into then zero trust. Do you think zero trust is, is the model we're going to be following? There's a lot of good parts about zero trust. Let's call that a North Star. Let's look at it as more an architecture, Ethan, right? The the principles, Ethan, are old, right? Like they're, they're the same they've always been. It's like, let's limit the attack surface. Let's limit the blast radius. Let's make sure if something is exploited that we see it and we can react to it quickly and we can quarantine it and we can hopefully prevent it from having a lot of impact. You know, those are also core to zero trust philosophy. So yeah, like in, in that regard, Ethan, I would, I would say zero trust is a, a good North star that a lot of us can, can align behind. The, the key differentiator I see for zero trust to, to me is, uh, is identity though. So sure, we've had a lot of um, these ideas in the past, but they've been difficult to implement, at least to implement consistently, sometimes to implement something that in the past that would have been zero trust. It was if you're within a vendor's wall garden, you could pull it off more easily than if you were trying to mix and match components and cobbling together a solution would require partnership integrations. It was just, it, it was hard and sometimes inconsistent and always expensive. Um, so I guess maybe that's part of where I'm coming from here. The, the, have we solved the identity challenge these days? Completely agree, Ethan. That's a big part of why it's been complex, right? We have IP addresses and MAC addresses that are are masquerading as, as identities, right? And quite frankly, a lot of that is in our C1918 space. And a lot of it is using the same IP inside my Kubernetes cluster. Uh, and so now I'm doing NAT traversal, uh, and now I'm doing port forwarding, and now I'm using IP addresses as identities in my ACLs. Whoa, you know, that's, that's complex. Um, so, <laughs> Agree, Ethan. Um, zero trust, and listen, every zero trust implementation is different, but zero trust implementations that give you an identity that's more of a immutable, secure identity than something like an IP address or MAC address, absolutely, it, it, it gets us on the right road. Are you saying we shouldn't care at all about IP address or, or traditional five tuple rules? Is that, are we at the point now where that's more or less irrelevant? I think we can use them for what they were intended, which is not really identifying, hey, this is Ethan, and let me authenticate him and authorize him based on an IP address. That's That wasn't the intent of the IP. Let's instead have a secure identity for Ethan or for Ethan if you're a machine or an IoT device. Um, let's have that follow more modern uh, cryptography, uh, you know, private key, public key type stuff. Let's use that instead of an IP address. Okay, so if we're going to identify, or if we're going to use cryptography for identity, we're talking about certificates, I, I presume. We're, we're getting into certificates there. Um, and do we mean endpoint device 
uh, as the the thing that we are describing an identity around, or do we mean processes running on that device as those could be distinct? So can be all the above. I think the beautiful thing, and and yeah, I apologize to the audience if I'm calling X509 certificates beautiful, um, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, compared to an IP address or, or dealing with RC1918 space. So yeah, I mean, listen, Ethan, we can associate them at whatever ever level of granularity that we need to associate them. Uh, and on the other side, when we talk about kind of micro-segmentation, we can give RBAC, as you said in the introduction, or attribute-based access, we can decide, well, what does that service or device or person or combination thereof, what does it have access to and what does it not have access to at whatever level of granularity we need for our use case? But that gets into complex policy. That is, if I am a network engineer who is very comfortable building firewall rules and ACLs, that, that's straightforward enough. We know how to write those rules. When you begin to break the granularity of a security policy down to do something that could be as specific as identifying processes and remote procedure calls or uh, APIs, you can make this call, but you can't make this call, then who the heck's writing that policy? And you know, how does that how does that even get done? Yeah, it's a key reason why Ethan secure networking, or if we want to use a zero trust term, why it's why it's a journey. Uh, what we often see is the first step is to determine well, what's on my network today, and what should be on my network. Um, you know, I might know that at a certain level today, uh, my ACLs might be pretty coarse grained and pretty broad, <laughs> um, and I'm not immediately to your point going to go from there uh, to, let's say, you know, microservice level granularity. Uh, it is important, in my opinion, to have the flexibility to start that zero trust journey uh, without having to kind of like overhaul all the things you just talked about. So maybe I can start with a specific user group. Maybe I can start with a specific use case. Maybe I can start with a greenfield application. Maybe I can start with a specific uh, multi-cloud or cloud type project. Um, and then Ethan, you know, then I'm on my zero trust journey. I'm solving a business problem, uh, but you know, it's a feasible journey. Yeah, well, you, you're making the point that zero trust is not all or nothing. That is, I can be, I can put tools in place that are going to allow me to implement zero trust and then phase in policy over time, ta tackle it, uh, go for the most critical applications or the most, you know, the, the things that the company cares about the most and maybe tackle those uh, first and, and let it trickle down through the org after that. I think it's well said, Ethan, right? It's not a box that you're going to plug in. You know, we're yeah. talking people and processes and tooling, instrumentation and cultures. Yeah, there's, there's, there's work to be done. Uh, okay. It's not a box I plug in. So th this, this is another question here. If I am a company that's looking to implement zero trust, I've got a security vendor in-house already. I've already got, I've already uh, probably got a firewall vendor and they probably also supply my VPN and maybe they do some other security stuff. Do I just go to them and say, hey, what are you guys doing about zero trust and when can I get me some of that? Is that how that works or is zero trust going to look like, what is it going to look like? I would say, Ethan, there's, there's a couple things there. Um, you know, I have a bias towards open source, obviously. So this, the set of questions I may be talking to my vendor is like, do I have to trust you about what's on the tin or can I take a look? Um, is it something that I can implement in a couple hours or is it not? Uh, is it not only, you know, like I, I bought from you for a reason to begin with, like I bought your firewall or whatever it was for a reason. It was because I had a certain architecture and a certain set of business problems. Well, 
my architecture and my business problems today and tomorrow probably don't look like they did two, three years ago when I bought the firewall from you. Um, so does your solution map to my reality today and what I think my reality will look like tomorrow? You know, that's where I would want to engage with the vendor and see what, what type of fit we might have. Do we think Zero Trust is going to allow me to build, do a, I don't know, we used to say best of breed, right? We, we'd, we'd pick different tools to solve different problems and that best of breed model, but we've kind of over the years moved back to, eh, I'd rather just give it all to one, one vendor that way. If it doesn't work, I can go yell at them and they can make it work. But are, are we going to be able to move back to, uh, I'm going to keep my firewall from this vendor and they're going to do that kind of stuff. And my zero trust, which which can function higher up the stack, um, is going to be from another vendor. Is that plausible? It's funny that how the how the pendulum swings, as as you just articulated. And I'm sorry to answer with the the engineer answer of like it depends. Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> sorry in advance, uh, but but that's that's probably true, right, Ethan? Like you know, what are your needs? How large is your organization? Where are you going? Um, you could probably make pretty cogent arguments for either. I again have a bias here towards more of a platform approach where each of the components of that platform has well-defined interfaces or APIs. It's fairly modular. Um, I, I just like mm-hmm. that amount of control. Um, obviously, there's some trade-offs there. <laughs> um, but listen, the world's getting pretty complex. Um, and there's some fantastic solutions for like different parts of the stack. Um, and if I had the ability to tie them together uh, in, a, in a pretty modular, sensible manner, that's usually where my bias is going to be. Well, I'm not, yeah, you pointed out APIs, and if you've got that sort of a surface to interact with, then you can mix and match your solutions from different providers and make them work together. Now, you're probably not going to want to do that as a consumer. Um, you probably don't have the people in house that are going to do that, so you might be looking to existing partnerships or integrations between your vendors with the tools of choice that you're trying to implement. But but you make a good point that it's possible. And we do see those sorts of partnerships and integrations all over the industry. Those are things that happen all the time. Uh, okay, I wanna, I wanna ask a different question, Galil. Um, and that is about connectivity. So with zero trust networking, yet another challenge, and I think we might've alluded to it a little bit earlier, is that of location. People aren't working on-prem, they're not in the office all the time anymore, if at all. They're everywhere. So how does zero trust networking help me with connectivity? Is this a replacement for my VPN or would it layer on top of my VPN solution? More often than not, it's going to allow you to eliminate that VPN. As you're alluding to, Ethan, you know, the perimeter is like dissolved more or less. But the other way you can look at it is you can say, well, well, what is the new perimeter, right? The new perimeter is the application itself. As you said, the application itself is everywhere. So the question is kind of like, can I extend zero trust networking to the actual application? Because that's kind of my new perimeter. Um, And if I do that, does it make my life more simpler or more complex? Um, Like, Mm. does it mean I'm more abstracted from things like middle boxes and firewalls and all that type of stuff? Or, you know, does it create an operational nightmare? Um, I think that's that's kind of the starting point to look at. Let's pause the podcast for a quick word from sponsor IT Pro TV. In my career, certification is how I kept improving my job situation and compensation, and IT Pro TV offers training to help you do the same. There are a couple of strategies that you can take with certs. You can skill up in an IT niche that you really like. For example, maybe networking is your thing. Okay, start with associate level certs, and then you go deeper with professional level. Another strategy is to widen your skill set. Maybe you've not done much with security, but you're interested. Great. 
take some cybersecurity courses and start passing cert exams, which makes a lot of sense as there's a big industry need for security professionals right now. Whatever direction you want to go. IT Pro TV's rich library of training material has you covered, offering instruction from CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. More than 5,800 hours of on-demand training taught by hosts who go out of their way to make it interesting. The course library is well-organized, and you can watch whatever you want on whatever device you have handy whenever you like. So whether you're starting out or skilling up, you can learn IT, pass your certs, and make your first or next career move with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout. And one more time, itpro.tv slash packetpushers. Use that promo code packetpushers at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now let's return to today's episode. So speaking of middle boxes, um, do I get rid of middle boxes maybe as an enforcement point in a zero trust model? Yeah. Listen, Ethan, if, if the app is the new edge, so to speak, uh, then it's obviously better if it can be done in a, in a simple, extensible manner. It's obviously better to, to move the policy enforcement point all the way to the app, all the way to the entrance ramp to the highway, if you will. Not not the middle box in the middle of the highway, not even the the box at the end of the highway, which is like the network firewall or even the WAF. Um, move the policy enforcement point all the way to the initial egress of the traffic. The um, client, the client, the application is again, Ethan, like you said earlier, yeah. like as granular as you want to go, like either okay, the, okay. the host or or the app. Okay, so you're you're advocating for that, which means if that's where my enforcement is happening, while I still need a central point of control somewhere, a control plane's got to live somewhere, my data plane doesn't have to have a middle box because I'm going to have my enforcement decision happening on the, the, the point of initiation of the connection, as you're saying, whichever end that happens to be happening at the app side, at the client side, a decision can be made. And, and we've seen that model. That model's come through in some different places um, with, with different tools now. Okay. Before, I want to dive into architecture, but before we do that, I think we should talk about use cases, Kalia. Where are you seeing people implement zero trust and having some success? You mentioned, uh, APIs already. That's one area, not only Ethan, because obviously APIs are extremely important in, in a new architecture, but they're extremely difficult to secure, uh, you know, if you look at it, if you look at like the OWASP top 10 threats and you really read through those, almost all of them are exploited from the network. And so then you think, well, why are they exploited from the network? I have like a, I have a API gateway, How, you know, why, why am I open to the network? Um, and the answer of course is, well, yeah, you have an API gateway. You have thousands, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of API clients. What are you gonna do in terms of your ACLE or your WAF or your network firewall, you can't do it, right? You, you have to be open at layer three. You have to be open to all those clients. Um, and yeah, yeah. Your, you know, your API gateway is gonna, gonna, at layer seven or layer four through seven, it's gonna figure out like, oh, that's Ethan. He should have access or he shouldn't have access. The problem is when Ethan is an attacker and he only needs, like you said in your intro, he only needs layer three access in order to exploit like a, a zero day, I, I think you mentioned in your intro, or mm -hmm. a config bug or an authentication bug or an authorization bug. 
that's where the problem is. Um, so now, if I can put zero trust into the application such that my API edge, whether it's API gateway or anything else, such that that's not open to the network, well, now I've taken a very proactive stance uh, to security that happens to, to mitigate like that top 10 OS list and, and everything else. So for that reason, Ethan, APIs is, is one huge cluster of use cases. So, so I know we got more use cases to talk about, but let's drill into this for a minute. So in this scenario, you're saying uh, I would be using zero trust uh, for identity. So I'm going to be using certificates to uh, announce that in this case, me as a client querying an API, uh, I am this, and here's my certificate that says I am this, and you can trust that my identity is who I am. So is that right so far? Yeah, and, and thank you for bringing us back to kind of first principles and identities. I, I was using the zero trust language, uh, and I probably shouldn't be. Um, you're right. That's where it starts. It's listen. I, I, if I'm querying your API server, Ethan, I have a little bit of code that basically, whether it's REST or, or gRPC, whatever it is, I my code interacts with your API server. I add a little bit of code and an identity that says, oh, if you want to get on the highway to begin with, like we talked about earlier, like move the policy enforcement point to the the client side. If you want. Galil to get on the highway and potentially get to Ethan's edge, you have to prove who you are and if you have access. If not, you have no uh, network connection to Ethan. Okay, this is important because we're not talking about proving identity to the app. We're talking about proving identity to some other third party. To the private overlay. Yeah, to, to the which I kind of skipped over, but like to like the private overlay network, Ethan, that is now going to sit logically between your API. Uh, server, your API edge, and me as your API client. And and again, in this architecture, your API edge is not exposed anymore to the, the networks. Instead, it's just opening up sessions towards this private overlay. Um, and so it's never going to see me <laughs> unless I can identify properly and get onto that private overlay. Uh, okay. This is, this is huge. And this is, I'm really glad we're having this part of the conversation now. Because what we're talking about is to get, you, you, you made the analogy of the highway. It's not that the endpoint, the client in this case, is saying, oh, you've checked and passed through these rules and this policy. I'm going to allow you to just make a normal uh, network connection. What you're saying is you've passed identities and policy. I'm going to allow you to create an overlay, make a tunnel to the app that you're trying to get to, pass your traffic through that tunnel to the app on the other side, who is, is the tunnel terminating at the app on the other side? Because because it also participates in the overlay. Yeah, spot on, right? So like, it's like, Ethan, the highway doesn't exist, period. You don't have the access, I don't have access to your API edge um, until or unless I have proven my identity authenticated and authorized. That's, that's exactly it. Move the policy enforcement point all the way to the start. Got it. Okay. So there's, there's a lot going on here in, uh, in in Galil's mind as far as how zero trust should should be implemented securely. The networking component is key. We don't have a, an, a, a way to connect from the client to the resource being requested without an overlay, a tunnel getting stood up between the two. You can't do, you can't make that tunnel without uh, identity. And then I'm assuming identity is just part of it though, right, Galil? Because there would also be what it is that I'm allowed, to, uh, the authorization component. I've passed authentication. Now it's authorization. What am I allowed to do? So I can't just ask any old API query or, or can I? No, you're, you're spot on. Um, now to your earlier point, Ethan, you can make this as granular as you wish. Um, mm. So maybe you want to say that my identity has access to like a whole bunch of your API servers, uh, but maybe not. 
maybe you want to give me much more specific access. That's that's now your policy. Uh, the key point, though, being you are in control. So not only are, are you you in control of that, you know how visibility uh, of end to end, like regardless of what network I might be on, what cloud you might be on, you know how visibility and control end to end. So let's say I turn out to be a rogue actor. Um, and yes, I was authorized to hit your APIs, but now I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. Uh, maybe because I was exploited myself or maybe because I'm just a bad actor, but for whatever reason, now you're just going to essentially turn off my identity. And now, boom, I can't get on the highway. I can't ping your API edge. I can't see it anymore. It's like it's disappeared. I no longer have a route at layer three. So even okay. if you have a, a you know something I can exploit, well, great. I can't get to it. Okay. Now, if you're listening to this, your brain just spun up like, wait, we're talking tunnels and overlays. Those things have to be terminated in some way. And how does that happen? And where are the, there's got to be devices and so on. We're going to get there, but I want to finish talking about use cases first with, uh, with Galil. So Galil, okay. So we used API, kind of that webhook model as one use case where you're seeing success here. Give me some other ones. Sure. Uh, IOT is, a, is another one, Ethan. Now in IOT, I don't have the advantage, so to speak, of having Ethan behind the device able to do something like multi-factor authentication. Uh, I have a device, a headless device. So same principles. I want to have something I can trust, meaning a cryptographically signed identity, um, both ways, by the way. So like the IoT device is going to validate who it is. Um, and the network, and it's going to validate the network. Um, so, like, there's a network controller here we haven't yet talked about, but maybe we can do a, a kind of packet flow later. You know, the IoT device has to be able to say, like, well, okay, controller, are you who you say you are, um, or are you some middle box man in the middle, whatever? So, MTLS from the IoT device, same principle from there, um, Ethan. Like that IoT device doesn't get access to the network until it proves that it who says it is. And on the flip side, if I'm coming from the network. And I want to access that IoT device. Sorry, the 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 firewall in front of that IoT device is now changed to default denial. Right, it has no reason anymore to listen for random quote unquote mm. inbound sessions from the network. No, no, no. it's going to open up um, if it gets proper authorization. It's going to open up a channel to that private overlay that we talked about, and that's it. Um, and now, now nothing else is going to be able to to hit my IoT device, which is really, really important because that thing might be sitting with old firmware, software, et cetera, et cetera, um, which you know, quite frankly, can be sub really difficult to update on IoT. Well, that's interesting because I would have assumed that IoT devices that are have their whatever their embedded software is, and you can't really mess with it, might not be able to be integrated with a scheme like this because you can't really mess with it. You couldn't install an agent on it, for example, if you needed to. So you're describing a scheme here where, in fact, you can implement zero trust for these um, simple, for lack of a better word, IoT devices. Yeah, you hit on a really good point. I mean, listen, Ethan, sometimes you can, sometimes it's a lot easier to embed the zero trust in the actual IoT application, right? Like if you have one app and tens of thousands of devices, you do the work once, you do it on the app. Um, and now when the app goes to the devices, the secure networking goes with it. Sometimes that's the case. Other times, it's some legacy app. Who knows who wrote it? No one wants to touch it. Like, thank goodness it's working. Let's not touch it. In that case, um, now you might have to put an agent on the host. Um, and you might not like that either. Um, but hmm. it may be your only option, right? Like if you want secure networking, then like everything we just described, you can also just put as an agent on the host. So like you can put it on your 
NVIDIA Jetson or your Raspberry Pi or like, you know, whatever system you're using, as long as it has like a, a legitimate, you know, let's call it 32-bit RTOS. Okay. Okay. So we've got uh, webhooks and uh, APIs. We've got IoT. Are there any other use cases we want to talk about? Yeah. Uh, the API and the IoT, we hit pretty well. The, the webhook, really quickly, it's interesting, Ethan. People make, um, so webhooks, right? Think of them as one-way APIs, but they're really powerful um, because it means that I want to get a notification from somewhere, from Stripe or Twilio or Jenkins or wherever. And I don't want to continually pull, 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 right? When Ethan buys something from me, I just want Stripe to tell me. Um, I want Stripe to, to, to send me a webhook. Um, and in today's world, usually what the way that works is I'm going to put like a Lambda function in the middle. Um, so I don't even want to pay for the compute uh, until Ethan buys something for me. Stripe says, hey, Ethan bought something. Um, mm -hmm wake up a Lambda function, fire it off towards my servers. Now, my servers might be a Confluence server. They might be um, my internal web app. They might be Jenkins, whatever they are. If you think about that, Ethan, what it means is my server has to listen to your server. And now I'm back in like classic ACL land, right? Because now if I'm getting webhooks from Stripe and Twilio and this and that and the other thing, my servers... You know, let's say my self-hosted Atlassian or Confluence server in, in my private cloud or public cloud, it doesn't matter. It has to have, it has to whitelist these IPs. Um, and okay, that might be fine if I'm doing that like once or twice. <laughs> um, but if I'm doing that a lot and I'm doing it in a lot of different environments, well, operationally, that's problematic. So instead, put zero trust into the webhook. Again, take your firewall, default deny all, open your outbound channel to your fabric, only listen for authorized webhooks. That's 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 the webhook uh, model. Okay, so we're we're seeing how people are implementing this, and it's interesting that all of these use cases wasn't they threw out their entire security model and re and implemented uh, uh, all over again with um, with zero trust. They brought in zero trust to solve a specific problem, and it you know we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah, you, you made a good point. Uh, generally, it's a it's a trade, right? You're getting rid of something. Um, if it's IoT, you might be getting rid of your remote management uh, solution. If it's IT, you might be getting rid of a bunch of firewall ACLs, um, or to your earlier point, VPNs. You know, you're 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 you you need you need that trade off. I wouldn't recommend layering this on top of your existing stuff. <laughs> um, I would recommend mm -hmm. trying to simplify your overall operations, get rid of some complexity if if this stuff matches your use case, mm -hmm. and and move to this kind of more proactive secure networking model. Well, okay then. Let's talk to our engineers about architecture, uh, Galil. So we have talked about a, a lot of things that imply that there is architecture happening. That is, if we've got a network overlay, if we've got policy that we're writing, if we've got uh, X.509 X certificates and so on, there's a lot of infrastructure there. So uh, walk us through the, uh, the infrastructure of implementing a solution like this. Sure. Uh, let's start maybe... Ethan, with the, the app embedded case, my, my application is going to do what it does up in user space. It's going to pass some packets down towards the wire. Um, I'm going to take an SDK uh, from you know, whatever my language, whatever my app is written in. And, and basically what it's going to do is it's going to be a wrapper or a shim around that network interface so that instead of essentially making a syscall and saying, hey, let me just send some packets towards the network, uh, it's going to say, I want to. I want a connection. Like in our earlier example, I want to get on the highway to the API edge. Um, that's where, Ethan, we're going to check the identity. Um, again, that's done with a cloud-based controller. Um, that cloud-based controller is a distributed 
function uh, that sits in the cloud. That can be your cloud. That can be public cloud. Mm -hmm. um, that controller is going to do things like push the policies to the endpoint. Like, you know, Ethan's allowed to access this, that, or, or the other thing. Let's assume, Ethan, that identity checks out, authentication checks out. You already mentioned it based on an X509 certificate. Authorization checks out. Ethan's allowed to access this. Um, and again, we could do attribute-based access there too and things mm -hmm. like posture check, but let, let's say it all checks out. Um, now we have this fabric in, in, in the middle. Um, and what I, what I mean by that is you already mentioned it, right? You have an overlay. Um, and, you know, overlays can have positives and negatives, right? In this case, what the overlay is doing is it's making sure that whatever is underneath, whatever networks, clouds, edges, like all the differences underneath, I'm going to abstract you from. I'm going to give you an end-to-end -end overlay from the process space of the application over here to the process space of the application over here. In the middle is routers. Um, I'm using that term, Ethan, uh, a little bit loosely. Hopefully your audience, uh, uh, my apologies, you know, it's not Cisco, Juniper, full stack routers. Um, yeah, they're, they're packet forwarding. It's, it's, they don't it's have some access. sort of a traffic router, um, but yeah. we mean it broadly speaking. We're not talking about layer three devices that run OSPF or something. You're, yeah, it, it, exactly. These are more like proxies. Um, they don't have access to your encryption keys. Um, they're looking at the headers. They're figuring out the best path between point A and point B. So generally, they're going to be distributed on multiple backbones, multiple clouds, multiple ISs. Um, and they're going to interact in a full mesh, basically, between the endpoints and the routers and figure out dynamically, hey, what's the best path from point A to point B? Um, mm -hmm. That's programmable, Ethan. Um, so if you felt like it and you wanted to kind of take these packets around the world a few times before you put them into your app server, yeah, you could you could program a policy like that. More likely, you want to get them from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Um, and so your policy is going to say, hey, you know, fabric, overlay, find me the best route. Um, it's then going to hit on the far side to your point. Now it needs to get over off the overlay. Um, what does off the overlay mean? Decapsulate the packets, decrypt them if we've added a layer of encryption, uh, which which we can, um, and now pass it to your edge. Um, and that can be done in, in three places, Ethan, just like everything else. Uh, you can do it all the way in the server side of your application with the SDK. You can do it on a host level. Um, or if you just want a quote-unquote gateway in mm -hmm. like your DMZ, um, then you can take the software and, and you can terminate the sessions uh, on your DMZ. And then it's obviously up to you how you kind of pass the packets from your, your DMZ back to your application server. Oh, I have questions now, Galil. Okay, so let's <laughs> uh, let's let's back it right up to the. I guess let's let's go back to the client. Now you mentioned a shim. You mentioned, and I, I think I'm hearing that there's two possibilities here where uh, we could be doing the decap and um, handing things uh, decaps and the end caps. So there's a there's a network shim that could happen at the host layer. Or there's an SDK where my developer could embed this into their application directly. Do I understand that right? Yeah, that's two out of three. Um, so SDK in the app, agent on the host, or the gateway example, Ethan, where you have a bunch of hosts. Sure. You're going to direct the traffic to, to, to a gateway. Okay. And, and do, what have you seen folks typically do? do? How many developers, I'm curious, have actually lit into the SDK and added that functionality to their apps? In some senses, especially for a Greenfield app, Ethan, that's actually the easiest path, even though it might sound counterintuitive. Um, so we have a lot of cases where I am the application provider. And whether it's an internal app or, or a customer-facing app, I have an application I'm developing at Greenfield. Um, 
and and a couple problems I have. One, I want end-to-end control and visibility. Two, I want to give my client, let's say, Ethan, you're my client. I want to give you one way to access my applications. Um, I don't necessarily want to go build Azure private link for one customer, AWS private link for another customer, um, you know, yeah. IPsec VPN for another, GRE, yeah, yeah. Geneve, blah, blah, blah. No, no. Uh, I, I yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I just want to give you one way to access my app. So like those, it's actually easiest for me just to use SDK, build it in my app. And now when Ethan um, downloads my application and mm. installs it, no matter where he is and his device is, magically, he's going to have a secure connection all the way to my server. He doesn't have to worry about DNS. He has to worry about geolocate, nothing, right? It's, it's, it's all done um, by, by, by the fabric in that use case. So that would be the one, the, the Greenfield application that's going to many, many users or many, many IoT devices. That's, that's, your, that's where the SDK is usually the, the easiest. And obviously, then there's, there's cases where the host might make more sense and there's cases where the gateway might make more sense. If I'm doing it at the host level, then any application that's running on the host in theory can take advantage of it. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, you, you kind of hit a key point. So it's, it's kind of like the opposite of a VPN. You know how like Ethan split tunneling is really difficult for VPN, at least if you're the administrator and you're operating the thing. Yeah. Um, we're kind of the opposite. If, if you can think about it, we're only going to intercept what you tell us to intercept. By default, we're going to intercept nothing. So in a very typical case, if you're putting us on a host, usually it's like, you know what, if I'm my Netflix, my YouTube, like ignore that stuff. That stuff just can go to your internet gateway. I don't care. But my business applications, et cetera, intercept those, do all your identity, authentication, authorization, magic, put that stuff on the overlay. Now, when you say intercept, this agent is intercepting at a process level. We haven't even gotten down to the network stack yet, right? It's at whatever level your policy uh, is asking. So you want to intercept a specific application, terrific. If just for example, Ethan, and, and listen, a lot of people start this way. If for example, you want to say everything go into, you know, these AWS subnets, intercept all that, because I know I have, I know those are my subnets. I don't really know maybe uh, at a more granular level than that, then you can do that as well. And you can do five tuple stuff. I mean, that's, that's, that's really your policy determining what to intercept. Yeah, but that policy is definitely layer seven aware. It's not merely layer three, layer four aware. It, we can go all the way up the stack with it if we choose is the is the big point here. Yeah, that's the idea. Be as granular yeah. as, as you want to be. Yeah, yeah, okay. Another component here, X.509 certificates. That implies this is the certificate authority somewhere, right? Good catch. Um, there's a couple things here. A lot of people don't want to manage their own PKI. Um, so we do build enrollment into the solution um, with our own CA and we take care of making sure like Ethan that your certificate doesn't expire on Christmas Eve when you're doing something else. Uh, there's other folks who want to use their own CAs. Um, now here, and there's another reason why I hate the zero trust word, right? You're choosing to trust your own CA or some third party CA. Fine. Um, we do believe in open architecture. We support our RC7030. And so you can, you can use your own CA or some third party CA. Okay. But, the, but there is, yeah, there's definitely going to be a, some, a CA, pr- probably a self-signed CA, since it's going to be your own and, and so on. It could be either way. Uh, this is going to depend on your security stance. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, your, your mileage may vary there in terms of what, what you're going to find out in the wild. Okay. Uh, we've talked a lot about the client side presenting their identification and their X.509 certificate. But th- this is actually MTLS, isn't it? It is. Uh, so the whole control plane is MTLS um, and the server side, Ethan, to your point, it's doing the same thing as the client side. I mean, I used a 
client server because that's the typical use case. Um, but if it happens to be a server initiated flow, uh, remote management, RDP, SSH, OTA updates, fine. It's doing the same exact, you know, the, the same exact, you know, packet dance, identification, authentication, authorization actually happening on both sides. They both initiate towards the private fabric and then the fabric marries the two sides of the session together. Yeah, it just kind of hit me that you really want both sides to know who they're talking to. It's it's one thing to make the call. It's another thing to know that you made the call and you're actually talking to who you think you're talking to. So mutual yes. CLS made was the logical where you'd want to go here in a zero trust paradigm. So okay, so we've got got a lot going on just with just with that much now. There's a controller again. What what is the role of the controller in this architecture? Is this the one that uh, I interact with as an operator? I interact with the controller to build policy. The controller then pushes policy to all my enforcement points. Spot on. Um, you know, there's two models. You can populate your own policies. Um, you can also do an integration. So if your policies already exist somewhere, like they're in Active Directory or they're in some IDAP or IAM or IDAS solution, um, you can quote unquote federate them. Um, and we support the, the the major integrations there. Um, or if your policies, you know, you want to do something much more granular, you can put them directly. Um, and then it's the controller that's going to push those policies to the endpoints. Um, and the controllers are also taking care of the the PKI magic on, in terms of the enrollment, MTLS, certificate validation, um, and and kind of the overall orchestration of the session. So if you're the administrator, you are dealing with that either with a web. UI um, or with APIs, um, but that's your, you know, that that's your primary, uh, you know, point of interaction. Let's say. Hmm. How does the client know that it has the latest policy from the controller? If it has trouble talking to the controller, some kind of a network outage, something like that. In other words, it's got to be enforcing against current policy. How do we know that that's happening? Uh it doesn't really know. It, it you can call it dumb from that perspective, Ethan. So let's say it's it's not talking to the controller. It's just going to use the last known good policy. Um, it's going to operate headless. Let's say now when the controller comes back online, okay, now it's going to get the latest and greatest policy. Um, but if you have some type of outage on the control, and these are distributed, obviously, but if you have some type of outage on mm -hmm. the controller, then yeah, you're you're actually operating on a you know the last known good policy. Okay. And these, these are design decisions that, uh, you know, in some of this we've, we've ended up getting somewhat specific about uh, your, your world here with a, uh, with open ZD. Um, but these are decisions you've had to make as you've built the product out. So I've been curious as to where your, where your mind has gone as you've, as you built this thing. Um, you mentioned Routers, not routers in the traditional sense we established earlier, but you know, routers is in we're moving packets along. Why do I need them if I have the ability to end cap and decap at my endpoints? What are the routers doing for me? There's a couple functions. Uh, the optimization of the actual data plane between point A and point B. So you're not relying on on basically internet BGP. Um, you're actually your endpoints and those routers are forming a full mesh. The endpoints know they, they don't know why. Like they don't know the difference between a peering issue and and you know just a bad route or a bad router. But what they know is okay. If I take this path across these routers, um, then it latency is you know 110 milliseconds. If I take this path, it's 80 milliseconds. Great. I'm going to take that path. Um, so the routers are helping to optimize the data plane. Okay. Um, also, really important, Ethan. Remember we talked about how both sides we 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 want to make it so 
they're not exposed to the networks. They don't have to listen to the networks anymore. I want to shut down the link listeners, default deny all on the on the firewalls. In order to do that, well, they got to talk to something, right? So, um, and we want to support bi-directional communication and we want to support both client initiated and server initiated. So what they do, both sides, um, is open up sessions into their fabric routers. Um, okay. So yeah. from a security perspective, that's that's why that that layer also becomes really important. Finally, control operations, management, orchestration, Ethan. Um, I'm going to get a lot of telemetry, a lot of controls, um, et cetera, from my fabric. That might be a little bit more difficult if I have to go to every endpoint. Yeah. Yes. So sort of like the sidecar model with uh with sidecar proxies, why you have them there, you can get all kinds of telemetry out of those things. Okay, so I see that, but now there's who who's maintaining this fabric of uh, of routers? Is that me, or is that there's some generic OpenZD cloud out there? I hop on. Two choices: OpenZD, open source, you, um, or maybe someone like a partner. If you don't want to manage the fabric, then you can do the cloud ZD. Um, which is just the hosted managed version of ZD. If that's the case, then either NetFoundry is managing your fabric for you or NetFoundry partners managing uh, the fabric for you. This is where NetFoundry makes its money. Okay, you guys, I know you got paid somewhere along the way. Okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we, ha- we hopefully have to get paid somewhere. Um, what we try, you know, we're, you know, you mentioned, Ethan, we had to make a lot of decisions. Um, one, one place we were opinionated, we, we didn't want to differentiate between the open source, open ZD, and the SaaS, the hosted cloud ZD on features. Like we didn't want to say like, Ethan, if you want this feature, you got to pay me. Yeah. We actually want feature parity. So what we, instead what we said, listen, if you want to manage your own fabric, go do it. If you want someone else to manage the fabric and you want things like SLAs and support and upgrades and automations, then we'll do it. You know, that's that's the, the basic way we, we set up the uh, dif- differentiation between the two. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Another client question as, Right. This hasn't come up yet before, but a lot of the security solutions that use the endpoint to do as the enforcement point, they're going to use the OS native firewall to get that done. They'll use IP change, they use Windows firewall, whatever. We're not doing that here. Why is that? Well, if you think about the endpoint is acting somewhat as a firewall, as you you mentioned, Uh, it's also acting as essentially a router also, right? So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's it's combining those two functions in a one. It's not like you can't use both functions in conjunction and, and plenty of people do, um, but but the routing element of the endpoint, putting the traffic onto the overlay, um, potentially encrypting it, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's the, the main differentiation there. Yeah, that agent's got to be, got to have network smarts and capability. Yeah, got to know how to talk to the fabric and, and all of that. It's not merely... It's not really admission control. It's it's more than that. That's going on. Okay. It, it, and it has the identity thin, right? So it's yeah, exactly, exactly as you said. Is there a chance the routers uh, in this case become a bottleneck, or maybe a better way to ask the question is: uh, We know they could become a bottleneck. So how do I what, what what do I do to make sure that doesn't happen? Is that simply adding more to the fabric, or I have to be very carefully doing capacity planning? The short answer would be adding more of them to the fabric. They're designed to be shot. I mean, if you think about what we've done is we've moved the attack surface from your network, right? We, we're doing default and all on both sides of your network. We've moved the attack surface to these routers, which usually generally sit out in the cloud. Um, and as such, we need to make sure that those guys can be shot and it's not going to impact you. Um, so HA and resiliency on, on, on the routing side, making sure, Ethan, that they don't carry any data of interest, making sure that 
they have no access to the payload. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then, yeah, giving you the ability to have a, a programmable fabric. Um, so you can choose how many of them do you want to spin up? What clouds do you want to put them in? Um, that this is obviously all on the open source side. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, those are just design decisions, Ethan. Um, there's obviously some costs associated with that, et cetera, et cetera, if, if you're doing the open source. Um, so if you need that type of resiliency, then yeah, but, you know, basically I'd say put them in every cloud, program them for maximum resiliency. Um, essentially, then your algorithms are going to be able to leverage the backbones of what are now the world's largest ISPs, <laughs> you know, AWS, Azure, Oracle, IBM, Alibaba, um, GCP. Um, but, you know, you, that's up to you. I don't always need the routers, though, do I? Because I'm imagining scenarios like, um, you know, within a Kubernetes cluster, microservices making calls to one another. I could, in theory, use this model and there wouldn't need to be a router. I could do my NCAPs and DCAPs right there, just direct process to process. Yeah, you're going to use, in that case, what we call an edge router. Um, think of it kind of as, as a hybrid between like the fabric routers I described um, and like the agents that we talked about, whether it's the SDK or, or, or the host agent, um, you still do need that guy. Um, because telemetry going, or? Yeah, and control um, and MTLS and encryption. Uh, to do that peer-to-peer, it can be done. It's a lot more difficult. Um, so generally in that scenario, like you're not going to want to take those packets all the way back out somewhere else on a fabric router. You probably don't right. need to. Um, but you're going to use the edge router um, as as essentially, um, you know, to enforce your zero trust policies. Hmm. And you're going to stick that right in your in your in your pod or, or on your host in, in all likelihood. So how does my application architecture work with this if I'm using load balancers? Everybody's using load balancers of some kind. But we've been kind of talking about this one to one communication here. If there's a load balancer as a middle box in the middle of my application architecture, how do I fit this zero trust model in? It's a great question. We've seen two implementations, uh, Ethan. One is if you think about it, your fabric is a distributed load balancer if you want to use it that way. Um, so if you're fairly sophisticated on the open source side, um, or you know, if you're using Cloud ZD, uh, then the fabric can be your load balancer. And interestingly, it moves the decisions, again, back to the on-ramp in, instead of the off-ramp, which can have some advantages and disadvantages. It's going to depend a little bit on your tooling and, and your processes and everything else. But you can use the fabric as a load balancer. If not, um, then the load balancers from a ZD perspective are basically invisible to us, right? They're, they're, they're underlay. Um, they're just like the equivalent of you know, the underlay routers that, that we also don't control. Um, so, you know, either they're invisible to ZD um, or they're being being replaced. And 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 that answer, obviously, is going to depend on like what you're trying to do and what your architecture is. Well, if I'm using the fabric as a load balancer, what does that mean? Does that mean I have multiple egress points, multiple endpoints at the end that could service the client request? And so the fabric just has some load balancing functionality and distributes in that way? Exactly right. Um, the implementations I've seen the most are usually on uh, AWS uh, using Geneve protocol to be able to um, have X number, N number, if, if you want, um, of routers in front of your application. Um, yeah, perfect, perfect example. Okay. But since a middle box or a, um, a load balancer typically is a middle box that functions as a proxy and we no longer be terminating a session on that box so it can do its proxy business, it's not there anymore. So the 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 ultimate answer is we need to rethink the architecture if load balancing is is key to us and how we're doing it to make you it can. all. Make, yeah, yeah. If because listen, load balancers 
like a lot of these quote unquote middle boxes, they, they serve a lot of functions, right? If, if they're just doing quote unquote load balancing, then the distributed fabric may be, it may, elim- may able, <laughs> enable you, excuse me, Ethan, uh, to eliminate them. Um, yeah. If they're other doing some other stuff, they might be doing some telemetry. They might be terminating TLS. They might be doing inspection, right? Might be if they're doing yeah. those type of things, you, you, yeah. you might not want to get rid of them. You might like those right. functions and want to keep them there. Okay. Okay. So that, then it's just some, it's, it's thinking required to how that's all going to happen in the context of the overlay and how that's going to get done. All right. Um, EBPF. Uh, I know I'm just firing a bunch of oddball questions at you, Khalil, but this, this is another one that popped in my head here with everything that's happening on in the EBPF world, as far as traffic inspection, being able to make various decisions, there's security use cases here. Does that fit into the zero trust world in your mind? Yeah. Well, listen, first of all, it's a fantastic conversation. Even uh, these happen to be topics that I could talk to you all day about until you <laughs> hang up on me. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, your your timing actually is pretty impeccable. So, so um, I mean, we can link it maybe in the show notes or something. But on, on the OpenZD blog, actually, just today, maybe yesterday, um, we did a post on eBPF because it's really powerful. Um, and like everything we talked about, Ethan, involved essentially intercepting some packets as close as possible to to the you know to the origination point, right? So if that origination point is Linux, which hey, that's mm-hmm. a lot of the case, um, and it, it's one of the Linux variants that is a you know a full fledged supporter of eBPPF, which is increasing and increasing and increasing. Well, that gives us a really nice way to intercept packets, do some packet munging, um, and or mangling. <laughs> um, been a long day. Sorry, do some packet <laughs> mangling and 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 pass is mangling a word uh, and and pass the packets um, to the ZD endpoint. Um, and and that's what that blog post describes. And and you know because it's done in the kernel um, and it's done in a very secure way, then then there's some performance implications, um, some telemetry implications. It's we're really happy actually with with well, the good, progress good that we've seen. Yeah, not bad ones. Good good yes. ones. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. It. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well, boy, that's something to talk about in a future show, maybe. Uh, infrastructure as code. Now, let's say I want to make changes to my zero trust networking policy, and I need to have those changes validated by some kind of an automated testing because I'm I'm doing testing as part of my infrastructure as code practice. Uh, comments or thoughts on that? Uh, some folks actually look at us as like network as code. Um, and it is like you can download all your policies, et cetera, et cetera, like as a YAML. Um, you absolutely can interact with uh, the network itself with our APIs, which means it can go into your Terraform provider or your Ansible, um, or it can be hit directly you know, from whatever code that you're using. So again, Ethan, we see I mean, we see this all across the board. Um, I don't even know anymore, like what percentage of folks are using our APIs via those type of DevOps tools and what percentage are using the web console. Um, but, but let's just say there's, there's a lot on both sides. I, I think the, I think that is the right way to categorize. There's a lot on both sides because a lot of it, there, there's learning that has to happen and operational changes that has to happen to get yourself up on the tooling. And if you haven't had time for that, you're just doing with what you can do and making it happen. And if that's the web UI, then that's what it is. Um, but more and more folks are making the time, taking the time, have had enough chance to, to play with it, to begin to introduce uh, the automated stuff. And maybe the practice isn't robust yet, but it's it's coming along. It's it's getting there for folks. So I, I agree with you. It's probably everything everywhere at this point. 
Um, Oh, we're getting a little short on time, Galil, but I got a couple more questions for you. One is a very practical question about rolling out zero trust from an operations perspective. I'm a NetOps person. I'm a SecOps person. We're getting ready to roll zero trust out. What are the big things, uh, me and my team, what should we be thinking about as we're preparing to do this rollout? So your overall, where's your trust networking fits in your overall infrastructure, I think is incredibly important, right? So what changes do you need or not need in terms of instrumentation, tooling, skill sets? Um, you know, when we see customers be successful, it's because they've thought about those things ahead of time. You know, Zero Trust by itself, it's, it's, it's again, it's not like a vitamin or, or even aspirin. That <laughs> I could just take and I'm good, right? It's, it's an ingredient more, Ethan. Um, and if I can plug that ingredient into kind of a holistic view, um, and I've taken the time to properly plan that, that's, that's where I'm going to be successful. Okay. So it's, uh, so the planning, it sounds like is the, is the key step here. Um, another thing that we already established in the podcast is it's not a greenfield only. I can definitely add this to brownfield so I can pick and choose my battles early on. Is there... I mean, what do I pick to kind of get started with this? Is there a, a typical environment people deploy this in before they, they go big? Yeah. Usually it's because you have a problem, a pain point, a headache, yeah. even um, where are those headaches? It could be at modernization project. It could be a multi-cloud project. It could be an IOT project. Those, I mean, those vary greatly as you might imagine. Uh, the key is, I mean, number one, because and and this is, you know, I'd say it doesn't have to be ZD, right? But any any solution that you want to use for zero trust, hopefully it's application aware, application specific, meaning you don't necessarily need to go throw all your traffic onto it <laughs> all at once. Um, hopefully it gives you the option to put it where it makes sense. Like, does it make sense to go right in the app? Do you want to deploy on a host? Do you want to deploy on a gateway? Um, is it the same across all cloud environments or are you going to have to like do bespoke things in different clouds? Like these are important considerations and and hopefully whatever platform you choose, you know, gives you the flexibility. So basically you can start your zero trust journey wherever it makes the most sense for you to start your zero trust journey, which is usually dependent on like where your headache is. Yeah. Still, if I have a dev environment, I think I might try that before I try my prod environment yeah. because this feels like there's enough complexity here that uh, there's there's foot guns involved, and I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be learning in production that I got the policy egregiously wrong. You know what I'm saying? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, great point. Uh, I, yeah. I certainly would not recommend uh, starting in broad. Great, great point. <laughs> Last question, and you're 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 in a position of being hopelessly biased because you have a product uh, and so on. But here, I'll throw the question by you anyways to see what you say, Galil. Uh, help network engineers develop a healthy skepticism about zero trust marketing. Okay. Cause the, uh, we're zero trust is, is we're starting to zero trust wash all kinds of things. Now it's percolating up more and more in the marketing literature out there. So what features should engineers be looking for if they are, they want to really truly do zero trust and not a marketing zero trust washed implementation? Yeah, I don't think Ethan, you or I need to tell an engineer to be skeptical. I, I think we're all skeptical with with a good reason. <laughs> um, and you know, listen, seeing is believing, right? So, like you made the point, like you're not going to just stick this in prod. Um, so, I, I would hope that whatever solution you look for, that that vendor or set of vendors 
gives you the ability to very quickly spin it up in like a sandbox type environment, dev type environment. Um, if you can't get the open source and see for yourself, um, at the very least, you know, you want to be able to play with it, get your hands dirty um, and do so quickly and effectively. Like for me, I'm not going to believe the mar- like if I can't set it up in my lab environment really, really quickly and simply and understand how that's done, then I'm going to be pretty darn skeptical that yeah. when I hit the wild of my prod environment, that everything's like going to like magically work. Like, <laughs> I say, yeah, I, I would agree that I like, like don't trust it until you can uh, at the very least play with it in, in some type of controlled dev sandbox type environment. Fair enough. Uh, Galil Zeno, uh, how do people follow you on the internet? So LinkedIn probably has the least amount of noise. Twitter <laughs> yeah. is fine as well. Yeah. Um, I'm okay. easy to find on on places like that, Ethan, uh, because of okay. my name. Um, and obviously, you know, on the ZD side, uh, I would say go directly to the GitHub. Uh, you can go to our docs site. You know, there, there's any number of ways on on the internet to, to to find the the Open ZD project as well. Yeah, and and as we established, Open ZD is free and open source software, and there's no strings attached there. And how Galil gets paid as a NetFoundry is you host some of the OpenZD infrastructure with him instead of doing it all yourself is uh, is how that works. So we've got links in the show notes for Galil's LinkedIn page, OpenZD on GitHub, OpenZD on uh, the, their tech blog that's out there. And uh, OpenZD, the NetFoundry folks did a sponsored show on the topic as well. That was back in Day 2 Cloud, episode number 142, which was published earlier in 2022. So you can also look for that conversation to dig in a bit more about the OpenZD specifics and the architecture and how the router works and all that. We had a great conversation there. Thanks to you very much for listening to today's heavy networking episode. And remember that Zero Trust, it's an emerging technology. There are different places Zero Trust is going to fit into your security architecture, different parts of the infrastructure stack that Zero Trust can impact. So Think of today's discussion around zero trust networking as one piece of a bigger zero trust puzzle. There's more than one way to think about zero trust networking. That, that's kind of the point I'm making. There's a lot of it depends, which we hit on in this show as you dig into the specifics. Now, if you enjoy discussions like this and you want to hang with some like-minded folks, join the Packet Pushers free Slack group at packetpushers.net slash Slack. Everybody is welcome, including vendors. And all we ask is you leave the marketing stuff at home or we'll be mean and boot you out of the Slack group. Plenty more tech goodness for your professional career development from Packet Pushers. Check out our many other podcasts, including Day 2 Cloud, which I co-host with Ned Bellavance, the shiny new Kubernetes Unpacked, hosted by Michael Levon, IPv6 Buzz with Ed Horley and friends, along with more at our YouTube channel. That's right. We've been posting educational presentations and so on on our YouTube, as well as working with vendors to demonstrate their tech. So you can see some of the stuff we talk about here on the podcast. And of course, yeah, we're on the socials, Twitter and LinkedIn mostly, and we'll see you there. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.